Have you ever considered what makes songs like that true? What makes grace so amazing? Isn't it the reality of the flip side of grace? The horror of judgment? I mean, think to yourself, maybe you sing that song, it's a familiar song, but you don't feel the kind of fervor to be able to say words like amazing. I mean, we use it for other things. I mean, you see Russ Westbrook on my Washington Wizards get that triple-double again. You're like, that dude is amazing. Or you see a performance on The Voice, some sister who can really sing, and you say, she has an amazing voice. But for God, why does our praise seem more muted, more tempered? Yeah, God is all right. Right, yeah, God is around. Yeah, God's been good to me. That's common to say, and it's true. But it stops short of saying that God and his works towards you are amazing. Because we often lose sight of the horror of our sin and of the judgment our sins deserve from God. And the fact that he doesn't give us what we deserve but show us favor, give us a future, give us a hope and a home, cause our hearts to yell out amazing grace. Saints, I think that's what the Lord is meaning to do, even in a book like Micah. A book that, as we saw last week, has some hard things to say to God's people both then and now. But God doesn't end things with a hard tip, but with a soft, comforting word to his people. God wants us to know that his judgment is real, but that his grace is amazing. So if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Micah chapter 2. Micah chapter 2, and this morning we're going to look at the entire chapter Micah chapter 2 if you've got a Bible Micah is right after Jonah in the Old Testament if you need help feel free to consult the table of contents Micah chapter 2 woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds when the morning dawns they perform it because it is in the power hand. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them away. They oppress a man in his house, a man in his inheritance. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, against this family, I am devising disaster from which you cannot remove your necks. And you shall not walk haughtily, for it will be a time of disaster. In that day, they shall take up a taunt song against you and moan bitterly and say, We are utterly ruined. He How he removes it from me. To an apostate, he allots our fields. Therefore, you will have none to cast the line by lot in the assembly of the Lord. Do not preach. Thus they preach. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. Should this be said, O house of Jacob? 
grown impatient? Are these his deeds? Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? But lately my people have risen up as an enemy. You strip the rich robe from those who pass by trustingly with out of war. The women of my people you drive out from their delightful houses, from their young children you take away my splendor forever. Arise and go, for this is no place to rest because of uncleanness that destroys with the grievous destruction. If a man should go about and utter wind and lies, saying, I will preach to you wine and strong drink, he would be the preacher of this people. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel, set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass the gate going out by it. Their king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. So here's what I think is the main point of Micah chapter 2, the main point of our passage this morning. Robbing others to reward yourself reveals a faulty view of man and God and will result in receiving God's judgment. Robbing others to reward yourself reveals a faulty view of man and God and will result in receiving God's judgment. Walk through this passage. I think we'll see three things. All right, and this mic is kind of going in and out, so if some of the sound guys can just turn this other one on. As we walk through this passage, I think we'll see three things that are prominent in this text and prominent among the people of Israel at this time. All right, so three points to the sermon. Number one, I think we'll see bad practice. And number two, we'll see bad doctrine. And number three, we'll see a good God. So point number one, bad practice. We see that in verses one through five. Point number two, bad doctrine. I think we'll see that in verses six through 11. But point number three, we'll also see a good God in verses 12 and 13. We begin by seeing God's judgment of Israel's number one bad practice. Bad actually might be an understatement. Verse one more descriptively labels Israel's lifestyle as wickedness, as evil. They are sinful people. Is that? jarring to you striking and not really is it i mean to be honest we're used to to regarding israel as a rebellious people an unfaithful people it's kind of how we've come to think of all people everybody's a sinner nobody's perfect now that's absolutely true Romans chapter 3 verse 23 tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But I wonder if we've let the commonality of that reality, that we've all sinned, 
dull our spiritual senses from the horror of that reality that we've all sinned against a holy God. I mean, the fact that Israel here is described as doing evil and wickedness should rock us to our core because this is not how things should be when God called them to be his people, when he rescued them from slavery and entered into a covenant with them. He told them in Exodus chapter 19, verse 6, that they were to be an holy people. And it's not just Israel. It's God's charge to every person to live holy before him. He created us to live holy lives that reflect his holiness, his glory. But instead of that, we've all rebelled against him and all sinned against God. And far from us just chalking that up to something people do, it should frighten us. Why? Because it's something that God hates. God hates sin. And God will judge sin. Friends, that's terrifying. Especially when we consider just how pervasive sin is. I mean, look at it here in this passage. How consuming sin is. It dominates thought processes. Uh, look at verse 1. The people devise wickedness. They work out evil in their heads. Nobody just stumbles into sin. Our minds are consumed not with how we can honor God, but how we can dishonor our maker. How we can do wickedness. Just notice, this is the the thought on Israel's mind 24-7. They devise and work out evil on their beds at night before they go to sleep. While they're asleep, they dream about it. And when they wake, what's the morning dawn bring? The opportunity to act on their thoughts, to do the evil that they planned all night. Just look at how perverse God's people have become. Hey, even in our own day, we have an idea that bad things happen at night. That's when the freaks come out. The robbers lurk. That's when the criminals commit crime. Under the cover of night. When day comes in the bright sunlight, there's supposed to be a return to, to normalcy, to order. But not in Israel. For some in Israel, the night was a time of planning evil, and in the broad daylight was a time for committing evil. They were brazen, unashamed in their sin. And what specifically is the wrong they did? The sin they committed? Well, verse 2 spells it out. They coveted fields and seized them, desired houses and took them away. Why? How? Well, look back at the end of verse 1. Because they had the power to do so. Friends, when desire is matched with authority and ability, it creates a perfect storm to do either good or evil. Often it can be for good. So think of Queen Esther. As a Jew, she desired to save her fellow Jews from destruction. 
And she was in a position of authority as queen where she was able to carry out her desires. As a result, many Jews were spared from Haman's plan to kill them. But often this concoction of desire and authority and ability can be used for evil. Here, the powerful people in Israel desired the lands of the weak and the vulnerable. And they used their positions of power to take what they wanted. It's as if they claimed eminent domain. They coveted fields and houses and they seized them. Your mind might reflect back to the story in 1 Kings chapter 21, where King Ahab desired the vineyard that belonged to Naboth. Ahab had a palace. All Naboth has was a vineyard, but uh, Ahab wanted what Naboth had. He tried to buy the, the vineyard. But Naboth, it being all that he had, the only possession that he had, refused to sell. So Ahab went all weepy-eyed and told his wife, Jezebel. And what did she do? She used her power as Israel's royalty to rob this poor man of his field. She had him stoned to death and took his land and gave it to her husband. Here we learn that that wasn't relegated to a one-time act of wretchedness by one of Israel's most wicked dynasties. That had become the warp and woof of the land, the normal way of life in Israel. The rich and powerful preyed on the poor and middle class. They took advantage of the weak. What their eyes wanted, they set out to take. Not content with what the Lord had given them, they wrapped their hands around the land the Lord had given others to live on and live off of. Friends, in an agrarian society like that in, in Israel, your land was all you had. Your land was like your paycheck, your savings account, your 401k, your stocks and bonds, your money under the mattress for a rainy day, your inheritance to your children. It was all you had. And so for the rich and powerful to come and snatch it away was to make you destitute for who knows how long. It was all in clear violation of the 10th commandment where God commanded his people in Exodus chapter 20 verse 17 that they were not to covet their neighbor's house or their neighbor's wife or their neighbor's servants or their neighbor's neighbor's flock. But here they coveted, coveted, they connived and they captured their neighbor's property and goods. Those with clout and authority use their power to, as Micah labels it in verse 2, oppress people. Now, if old Micah were ministering in our modern day, we might be quick to criticize him here for leaning left, adopting some liberal agenda, looking around society, seeing one group of people prospering, gaining wealth and possessions, while another group is losing them and then conjuring up a false narrative of oppression. There's another one, drinking water from the woke fountain. But is that true? Now we need to be careful and clear 
not every instance of a disparity is necessarily an indication of discrimination or injustice. Let me say that again. Not every instance of a disparity is necessarily an indication of discrimination or injustice. It's easy, but rather simplistic, to see some disparity and automatically assume it's because of discrimination based on race or gender or age or social status. That it's the result of some oppression by a dominant or majority group. There are factors other than some discriminatory act or malicious motive that may be valid reasons behind a presumed inequality. We need to be sober-minded and not jump to the most heated allegation or make the broadest generalization when we are made aware of some disproportion. It's popular, very popular, but not always wise to scream oppression at every act. You might find yourself in the unfortunate position of the boy crying wolf, your voice muted when there are actual, very, very real instances of oppression. And friends, there are very real instances of oppression. That is not a Marxist idea or simply the fruit of critical theory. There is oppression that is prevalent in, in, in people's individual lives and how they deal with and relate to people and corporately embedded in systems. And it doesn't have to be explicitly codified. I mean, if you would have looked at Israel's books, uh, their laws, you would have very easily have said there is no systemic injustice here. No widespread oppression in Israel. I mean, the total opposite would be found. Their laws promoted a just and equitable treatment of all people, of the poor, of the sojourner and the alien, of the woman and the man. But in practice, what you found was widespread greed that fueled a system of the rich getting richer, not simply while the poor got poorer, but at the expense of the poor. I mean, notice here, God through Micah condemns the entire nation for their wicked acts of oppression, using power and position and opportunity, not to help the weaker, but to exploit them, to take from them and make them poor. And it brings God's wrath. Therefore, says the Lord in verse three, because of the people's oppressive ways, God is coming to judge them. And just notice the poetic justice of verses three through five, where the powerful land grabbers in verse one were described as devising wickedness. In verse three, God says, I am devising disaster upon you. They plotted to do evil against people. And now God responds in kind. He is orchestrating their demise. He'll put them in yokes that they won't be able to remove their necks from. It's probably a reference to him sending them away as captives to the Assyrians. In that day, he says in verse four, their captives, the Assyrians, 
will make up a melody to taunt the people of Israel, to mock their situation. They're going to make a parody of Israel's plights. And just listen to the lyrics of this taunt song. We are utterly ruined. He, God, changes the portion of my people. How he removes it from me. To an apostate, he allots our fields. Israel would be ruined, destroyed. Their land would be taken away and given to apostates, to people who don't even know God, to the wicked Assyrians. Again, just notice the justice in this. This song that Israel as a whole would bitterly sing in the future probably matches the sentiment that the weak and vulnerable felt in their hearts when the powerful and the greedy took from them. They may have felt that their lives were ruined. They no longer had a place to grow crops and make a living and no inheritance to pass down because their land had been taken away, removed from them and allotted, given to apostates, to fellow Israelites, yes, but in name only to a people who obviously held no real regard for God, seeing how easily and openly they violated his commandments. What a time is coming, God says, when all Israel will weep and mourn, even the rich and the powerful. The land that they took from others would be taken from them, and they would join the bitter chorus of those whom they taken from lamenting over their loss and it gets worse verse 5 hints at the reality to come that even though Israel will be taken captive and carried off into the exile for their sin that God would bring them back into the land he would reassemble them and just as he'd measured out the land and given different lots to different tribes when he first brought them into the promised land he would do it again but, but look at the vow God makes to the wicked in verse 5. You will have none to cast the line by lots. You will have no future inheritance in the land and thus be cut off forever, both from God and from his people. Why? Why would God be so harsh, judge so severely, for what sin could God respond this way? And you might understand if it was something like we saw last week with idolatry, with bowing down and worshiping carved images. We don't do that. Never mind the, the attention and time we give to bowing down to the, the curved edges of our smartphones. You can understand if idolatry brought God's judgment like this. But so does this thing wronging those made in God's image. That too brings God's fierce judgment. Using your position and pull to take what you want. To pull others down to push yourself up. Saints, where might, where might we be guilty of these things? Desiring something and using our position to take it. Maybe it's at work. You really want that promotion or recognition that might lead to that promotion. 
And so instead of acknowledging the help that a coworker or one of your employees gave in completing a project, you present it as all your own so you can get all the praise. You rob others of the recognition they deserve so you can get their rewards. Or maybe you're tempted to think, this passage don't really relate to me. I don't put anyone down. Don't take from anybody else for my own benefits. Well, is that only because you don't have the power to do so? I mean, remember where this grab for land all started. In the heart. Look back at verse 2. These people first coveted the fields and then took them because it was in the power of their hands. What is it that you covet? That others have, but you really want? Is it wealth, fame and reputation, a nice house, a, a spouse? And if you had the ability to take it from them, would you? Are you so sure you wouldn't? Now, before you, you answer too quickly, stop and think of the dreams or daydreams where you put yourself in someone else's shoes, in bed with someone else's spouse in someone else's occupation with their job title so you can have their fame and their fortunes. Friends, coveting in the heart and capturing with the hands is only separated often by opportunity. You don't know what you'll end up doing if you allow covetousness to keep growing inside of you. Saints, cut off the ugly head of covetousness by cultivating a heart of contentment. Thank God for all he's already given you instead of grumbling about him not giving you what someone else has. Pray the prayer of Agur in Proverbs 30. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. We see here in our passage the dangerous and deadly mix of covetousness and power that when combined often spill over into oppressing others, robbing from and exploiting them, taking from them. And we've seen it time and time again from the transatlantic slave trade to modern day slavery and sex trafficking. From the German concentration camps that killed millions of innocent Jews to modern day abortion clinics that kill millions of innocent babies. When the lust for land, the lust for wealth, the lust for status, the lust for convenience is coupled with power to fulfill it, there are no limits to human wickedness but know that God hates it and he will judge it. Nobody gets away with wrong. The God who is the judge of all the earth will do right. Vengeance is his. He will repay. Saints, I hope that comforts you if you've been the victim of a power grab. 
Perhaps someone has used their power to take from you. Perhaps they've used their physical power or the power of their position to coerce you into sex. God sees. God knows. And God will judge. Perhaps they've used their power to smear your name and take a promotion from you or to keep you from getting a job they want. Be comforted because God sees. God knows. And God will judge. He sees every evil, every wicked and bad practice in Israel and now, and he will deal with it. Now that should comfort us if we've been victims of this kind of abuse of power. But if you're the perpetrator, it should lead you to repentance, to turn away from the robbing and defrauding of people for your own pleasure. But sadly, in Israel, their bad practice was fueled by and firmed up by their bad doctrine. Which leads to point number two, bad doctrine. I think we see that one of the first signs of a bad doctrine is the rejection of good doctrine. I mean, look there, verse six. The people want Micah to shut up. Do not Preach, they tell him. Don't say anything bad about us. It reminds us of the Apostle Paul's words 800 years later. That a time was coming where people would not endure sound teaching. Well, here, Old Testament Israel prefigured that promise. They wanted Micah to stop preaching. And instead, they commissioned their own false prophets to preach. And their message things are going to be just okay. I mean, look at the rest of verse 6. They say that one should not preach of such things as Micah had been preaching. What such things? Things about judgment and disaster. Instead, what do they confidently assert? Disgrace will never overtake us. Don't come in here with that judgment talk. You say something nice or don't say nothing at all. It sounds like the advice leaning into commands that we hear in our day. Don't you talk about sin and judgment. Don't talk about racism and sexism and adultery and fornication and homosexuality and drunkenness and greed and slander and gossip being sinned. And the penalty of all sin being death. Don't you preach that message. You better sound a more positive note. But can you imagine what would happen if God didn't speak words of coming judgment, either directly or through his people? And Noah wouldn't have built and his family wouldn't have boarded the ark. Lot and his family wouldn't have left Sodom. The children of Israel wouldn't have painted blood on their doorposts so that death would pass over their firstborn. The people of Nineveh wouldn't have repented and escaped destruction. And friend, you and I wouldn't have either, but would have received the due penalty of our sin, eternal suffering and torment in hell. But God speaks words of coming judgment and praise him that he does, because in them are calls to turn away from sin, to escape judgment and turn to him. 
So, so, so kids, when your parents keep telling you about Jesus, when they share the gospel with you that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the grave, so that if you repent from your sins and trust in him, you can be saved, don't shut them off. Don't turn up the, 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 the volume in your AirPod. Don't wish that they'd stop speaking, but rather trust that God is speaking through them to spare you from destruction. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, or maybe you think you are a Christian, but you really hate that you came in the middle of a sermon series through the book of Micah, with all this talk about God's judgment, well, God has you here for a reason, to know more of his character and more of his ways. He is a holy God who hates sin and will judge sinners. We plan to preach that message here because that's what the Bible presents. But God is so kind to have you here to hear this message so that you might turn away from your sins and not experience the coming judgment. Amen. Friends, we'd be happy to talk with you more about what that means for your life after service. Come talk to the folks around you. Find me around here at the front. We love to tell you more about what Micah means to tell God's people there. The judgment is coming, but you don't have to experience it. The people of Israel had a bad view of themselves. Not that they talk, thought too lowly of themselves. They thought too highly of themselves. They didn't think of themselves as perfect people, but they certainly didn't think of themselves as wicked people. I mean, there were others far worse than them. You hear it in our day. I've never killed nobody. And plus, they were God's chosen people. No disgrace, no shame could come upon us. This bad view of themselves was coupled with a bad view of God. And look there at, at verse 7, which I think is God talking, relaying what the people's thought process is in, in, in this verse. He asked rhetorically, should, should this be said, O house of Jacob? And what is it that Israel was saying, was thinking? Well, look at the second line of verse 7. Has the Lord grown impatient? Are these his deeds? And the implied answer from their perspective was surely not. I mean, this is the Lord, Yahweh. Uh, that's what that capital L-O-R-D means. It's the covenant name for God. Surely this covenant-keeping God won't grow impatient with his covenant people. Surely he won't do any of the punitive deeds that Micah has falsely prophesied about. I mean, the Lord is good and does good to his people. Now, of course, that's true. Perhaps Israel got their understanding of the Lord from the Lord's own self-disclosure of himself back in Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7 where he revealed himself to Moses. He passed by him proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. See, that's what God is like. 
merciful and gracious, not punitive and angry, slow to anger, not impatience, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Those are his deeds. But that's not all about God. If Israel would have kept reading Exodus 34, 6 and 7, they'd find, yes, God is all these things. But the next line, he will by no means clear the guilty. Visiting the iniquities of the fathers on the children and the children's children down to the third and fourth generations. The late theologian J.I. Packer once famously quipped, a half-truth masquerading as a whole truth becomes a complete untruth. The people of Israel flouted around and believed a half truth about God. The half they wanted to believe. A God of love and mercy, of grace and patience, of commitment and forgiveness. And thank God that he is all those things. But he's also just. And because he's just, he will judge evil and wrong as any good judge would do. And in failing to believe this about God as well, what they were constructing was a God of their own imagination, a God who would conveniently live side by side their wicked practices of idolatry and greed and land grabbing and not say anything whose constant disposition of love and grace would enable them to continue living as they wanted. Sure that if they were in the wrong, God would forgive. And whose promise of steadfastness and faithfulness ensured that he would never, never leave them. But they were wrong about God. Look at verse 7. Where God says in the form of a rhetorical question, he, he basically says, yes, I am good. And my words are good towards the one who is good, the one who walks uprightly. It is what God promised when he entered into a covenant with Israel, that if they followed him and obeyed his word, things would be all good. He'd bless all their efforts. He'd bless them in the city and bless them in the fields. He'd bless the fruit of their wombs and the fruit of their land and he'd bless the fruit of their cattle. He'd bless them when they come in and when they go out, it will be all blessings. Yes, there is much good in my words if you obey them. But in verse eight, God says this, my people have risen up as an enemy. How? Have they cursed God? Waged open war against him? Well, yes, in a sense. Again, by doing wrong to people made in his image. Look at verses 8 and 9 as God again details the powerful of the land's treachery and oppressive abuse of the vulnerable. They march through the land as if they've conquered in war and are taking the spoils. They stripped the rich robe from the unassuming Israelite who felt at peace in his homeland with no thought of war. But the powerful have waged war on them, on their property, and on their assets. They've driven out women from their houses in verse 9, taking the houses for themselves. And they've taken away the land, which would have been the inheritance of their young children. 
It's a recap of what Micah described earlier in verse 2. And yet, with all these wicked practices, these powerful land grabbers still claim the Lord is on our side. You've seen them. Perhaps you're one of them. Doing all kinds of evil Monday through Saturday, but Sunday morning you're going to be in church praising the Lord. Or even worse, doing all kinds of evil throughout the week, defrauding people, getting rich at the expense of others in the Lord's name. Pastors preying on the pockets of parishioners. Give me your money, all your money, so I can do the Lord's work while driving around in the nicest car, living in the most luxurious house, traveling on the most lavish private jet. What a lovely life. You can have all your heart's desire, no matter how you got it, and you can have some God too. Or can you? The Lord emphatically answers that question in the negative. What would all this greedy land grabbing lead to? Well, temporarily, it might lead to the building up of a mini empire for a few powerful people as they expanded their territories. But ultimately, it would result in the total loss of all land. All these landowners' efforts would prove futile. As God says, they'd give it all up. Look at verse 10. He tells them to arise and go. Get up and get out of the land. For no longer was it a place of rest, as God intended it to be for his people, but a place of wickedness and corruption, of the same kind of uncleanness that characterized the lands of the other peoples. And as a result, the land would be destroyed, and they would be removed from it. This arise and go isn't an invitation, but rather a forceful removal. God was going to send his people into exile for their sins. He would snatch the lands that they snatched and make them prisoners in another land where they would own no property and where they would be severely oppressed. God here sounds more like Micah's portrayal of him than the powerful people of Israel's portrayal. He is a God who judges who would kick his people out from their land, who would give them into the hands of their enemies, who would make them an utter disgrace. But not even God's voice can change the people's practices or change their perception of God. They muted Micah's mic and they'll mute God's mic until they find a voice who will support their way of life. And they find one in the type of preacher Micah presents in verse 11. One that checks all the boxes for Israel's prophetic search committee. What kind of preaching are they looking for? The kind that suits their own passions and desires. Uh, Micah says, if, if a man came and uttered lies, and said, I'll preach of wine and strong drink. That man would be the ideal preacher for this people. Wine and strong drink convey that this is a time of celebration, 
of letting the libations flow and living it up. It's a period of prosperity for the upper echelon, where the rich keep getting richer, where the haves grab to have more. That's what the people want to hear. How God's going to bless me, grow my finances, add to my possessions, build my assets up. Does it sound familiar? But that kind of preaching with soft words that people want to hear grows hard hearts, making it harder and harder for people to hear hard words that they actually need to hear. Words that, though hard, would keep them from something harder, from judgment. Words that would keep them and us from the wrath of God. Israel held to a version of God that would only prosper, but never punish them. Their bad doctrine fed their bad practice, and their continued bad practice only served to confirm their bad doctrine. It was a cyclical effect that could only lead to a bad ending. But even in all this, they still had a good God. Point number three, a good God. You can see the storm building up, can't you? The dark clouds of judgment are hovering overhead. Chapters 1 and 2 of Micah have explicitly detailed the gross sins of the people from the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, from all Israel, idolatry and greed and oppression. God, through Micah, has pronounced judgment, but the people have tuned God and Micah out. You just know what to expect in the next scene the clouds of judgment to break open and God to let loose with destruction. It's what the people deserve. But instead of giving them what they deserve, destruction and doom, God breaks through the dark clouds with a bright promise of grace, offering what they don't deserve, deliverance. Now look at verse 12. He says, I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will, after the, the remnant of Israel, I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. God here likens himself to a shepherd who would go out and gather his scattered sheep. Israel would be sent off to exile. Many would die in exile, but God would preserve a remnant. He would keep for himself a people, and he would go out and get them and bring them home. Verse 13 likens him to a king who goes out in battle. He opens the breach and brings his people out of captivity. They pass through the gate of the city, going back into their homeland with the king out in front of them the Lord at their head. There's hope ahead. There will be deliverance from judgment at the hands of this shepherd king. The people of Israel had once been led by a shepherd king. It marked the time of their utmost allegiance to God. But David, 
was dead. And Israel looked a far cry from the people in David's day. But God was sending a better shepherd king, a greater David to come and restore his people. Almost 800 years after this prophecy, Jesus Christ appeared, the son of David, the son of God. He came to deliver not just Israel, but all God's scattered people, lost in sin, captive, not to the Assyrians or Babylonians, but to the domain of Satan. He came to bring us out and to bring us into his kingdom with him, the king, as our new head. But he would do it, not by military might, but by his substitutionary death. Jesus was the true good shepherd who would lay down his life for the scattered, harassed sheep. He led people out of judgment of being exiled to eternal death by being judged in our place, dying for us. But he rose from the grave victorious, granting victory and deliverance from death, from sin, from Satan to all those who turn from our sin and trust in him. God doesn't leave us with judgment, but with hope. Yes, we've all done bad things to God and bad things to be people made in God's image. Yes, we've all believed bad things about God, lies about his character and his ways. But God has done good to us. He's extended his hand in grace, offered us reconciliation, given us his very own son that we might be spared, delivered from exile and brought into his eternal promised land. There is no better offer, no better God than this. You can keep your land and all your wealth. Give me this kind of God. Keep your small, skewed view of a God who's only good if he gives me what I want. Give me a God who, although I've sinned against him horribly, has given me what I don't want. Him and made him pleasurable to me. He is my greatest pleasure and my greatest joy because he's changed our wicked hearts. He's made us covet not the things of this world, but to long and desire him as our greatest good. Saints, if you don't know that true joy this morning, ask God to give you a new heart and trust that he will give it. Trust that he will bring you into a better promised land, away from the bondage of sin and captivity to the things of this world and give you entrance and citizenship into a new land, a new world where you will be a new person with a new people and live forever. That's what's ahead for us. Praise God for his marvelous, matchless, amazing grace and bow down and worship his son, our matchless and majestic shepherd king. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word of, of judgment that shows us our depth of sin, that shows us the reality that we should face but Lord, thank you that you are a gracious God, that you respond to us, not with ultimate destruction and disaster, but with grace, with love. You loved us so much that you gave your only begotten son to live in our place and to die 
for our sins so that we trust in him, we could be yours and saved. Oh, Lord, remind us of the sweetness of your grace this morning. And grant to those who don't know this grace a taste of it, that they might know how good you are. We pray all this in Jesus' name.